Romans 7, 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And now, Father, I pray that as we take up this weighty theme of the deadly team of law and sin, that there would be on us a very weighty sobriety and seriousness. We're not playing games, eternal destinies hang in the balance. Sin kills and uses law to do it. And we need to understand how not to be killed by it and through it. So come and set us free by your word, I pray. Through Christ. Amen. It is a very sobering thing when you realize how badly bringers of good news can be treated. Jesus said, They will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name. And probably the most shocking one of all in this regard is John 16:2, where he said, The hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think that he is serving God. It's just astonishing that good news can meet that. It's good news. The gospel is good news. It's the best news that ever was. There's no better news that ever was, is, or ever will be. Gospel. God spell. The old English. God. Good. Spell. News. Tale. Good news. Greek. Euangelion. You. Good. Angelion. News. It's good news. It's simple. This is, this is an easy word to get a handle on. Gospel is good news, and the good news is of Romans 1 to 5. Almighty God, holy and just, justifies the ungodly by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, not our work, to the glory of God alone. That's the gospel. Of Romans 1 to 5. And it meets with such terrible opposition sometimes. Why? You know what our greatest danger is at that moment? This moment? 
that we will stop thinking of the gospel as good news and start thinking of it as a provocation or a disputation or a summons into court. And that will be our mentality as we share it. I'm going to provoke you. I'm going to dispute with you. I'm going to give you a summons. You ever gotten a summons? That's not a happy occasion. I got one, one time, at the doorbell, when we were doing this pro-life stuff. Boom! You're being sued. And that's the way sometimes we take it. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Good news is not for disputation. It's not for provocation. It's for proclamation and liberation and jubilation. That's what it's for. And so, what a sad thing. How easily, how easily we, we lose the wonder of the gospel. Justification before a holy God, acquitted, accepted, affirmed, loved, by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, to the glory of God alone. And it no longer stuns us that we are beneficiaries of such grace. It's just a matter for provocation and disputation and Come into court. What a sadness. Now the reason I say this is because here we are in Romans 6 and 7. And I don't want us to lose the wonder of Romans 1 to 5. Paul says in 3.28, We reckon that man is justified apart from works through faith. He says in chapter 5, As sin reigned in death, so grace will reign through righteousness unto eternal life. And we should just be on our tiptoes exulting in the awesome news that we are as ungodly people, acquitted, not guilty, accepted, clothed in an alien righteousness. But you know what happens at the end of chapter 5? Poor Paul. He has to defend his gospel. Because immediately it's being distorted. And perverted. And rejected. The first distortion is, oh, I get it. Let us sin that grace may abound. Paul says, no. And he writes chapter 6. Defense of grace. And the next objection and distortion is, ah, I hear you. You're turning law into sin. And he says, no, it's not what I'm doing. And he writes chapter 7 to defend law. You're making grace into license with this gospel. And you're making law into sin with this gospel. And poor Paul has to write chapter 6. And chapter 7, and that's where we are. Chapter 7, verse 7. Is the law sin? You've said as much, haven't you, Paul? 
die to this law. It multiplies sin. It makes it worse. It stirs it up. It creates all kinds of covetousness. Come on. And now Paul in verses 9 and 10 is going to answer. And they're not going to be satisfied with this answer. Let's read it. I was once alive apart from the law. That is, I once had little or no consciousness of sinning. I was free in regard to righteousness. Like it says in chapter 6, verse 20, I went about doing my own thing and it never occurred to me that I should have a guilty conscience for that. And I was not burdened and dead. I was alive and free doing what I wanted to do. And then the next phrase says, but when the commandment came, when was that? I'm not sure. Perhaps when he was a child and his adolescent conscience awakened to the fact that his own whim is not law. God is law. Maybe it was the the awakening of conscience when the commandment came. Or maybe it was his conversion when the real meaning of his self-centeredness landed on him as a Pharisee. I don't know. And I don't think we need to decide absolutely which point in his life he's talking about here. But something happened. The commandment landed. It came. The commandment came. And what happened next? Sin became alive. Now, he had been sinning. We are born sinners. He had been sinning, but it had sort of been unnoticed. He hadn't seen it as sin, experienced it as sin. His rebellion was not really known to himself. And now, in the face of the commandment, sin lives. He recognizes it and becomes even more rebellious. And then what happens? Next phrase. And I died. Sin lived and I died. That is... I experienced subjectively what had objectively been the case. I think that's what he means. It landed on me. I'm a dead man. I'm as good as dead. In view of this commandment and my will, which cross each other. I'm a dead man. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life... The command is given, is given pointing to life, offering life, and so weak and helpless and powerless, it can't give any life. So what happens? This commandment proved to result in death for me. There you said it again. See? You said it again. The law is a murderer. The law is sin. You blew it. You thought you were answering the objection and you just put your big foot in your mouth again. You are making the law sin. It's a murderer. You said so. The end of verse 10. So Paul writes verse 11 to say, no, that is not what I said and that is not what I mean. Here's what I mean. When I say that the commandment came and became death for me, here's what I mean. Verse 11. Sin taking an opportunity through the commandment. We're going to see that phrase four times. 
2 in verse 11, 2 in verse 13. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 13. Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. It killed me. Sin killed me. Sin's the murderer. Law is the weapon. Sin brought about my experience of spiritual doom. Sin used the commandment of God as a weapon and killed me. Sin is the killer here. And then verse 12 draws the conclusion, so then the law is holy. It's not a murderer. It's holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then verse 13, jump with me to verse 13. He just repeats verse 11, only he does it with another twist to let us know why this is coming to pass. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good, that is the law, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death. Here it is. Through that which is good. That's the third occasion of that phrase. Here's the fourth one. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. That's just verse 11 all over again with a twist. Verse 11 said, sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. I have a picture in my mind here. You may have your own, but here's mine. I picture a scalpel in an operating room in the hands of a gifted healing surgeon. Scalpel is called commandment. Sin pushes open the door of the operating room, walks in, snatches the the scalpel out of the hand of the surgeon and slits the patient's throat and kills him. That's what sin does. Now, here's the question. Why would the surgeon allow that? He's strong. God is strong. Why would he allow that? And verse 13 has that twist I told you at the end. And that twist is the answer to that question. The last phrase of verse 13 says... So that this happens, this prostitution of God's law and this scalpel by sin to use it for what it was not for. It happened so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. It's sinful to murder. It is utterly sinful to use innocent people to bring about the murder. It is sinful to poison a child. It is doubly, utterly sinful to trick the mother into administering the poison thinking it is medicine. That's more sinful. And you start to feel the depth of the wickedness of this being, this reality, this power called sin. That's what verse 13 says God allowed this for. So that in using a holy, just and good instrument to bring about such horrific consequences, we would feel the magnitude of our sinfulness and how wretched sin is. This is not an absence of something. 
So many people think of sin as kind of the absence of good. This is a positive mega power in our lives that is ugly and wicked and takes good things and prostitutes them. It reminds me of a a line in one of Michael Card's songs. Speaking to Judas, that's not what a kiss is for. That's a powerful line. That's not what a kiss is for. That's not what a scalpel is for. That's not what the law is for. You don't boil a baby goat in his mother's milk. Why? A mother's milk is for life. That's why. It's not what it's for. Sin is ugly. I hate sin, especially mine. Don't you hate sin? You're supposed to hate sin when you read this verse. Your eyes are supposed to open up when you read this and hate your sin. Hate your remaining corruption as a believer. Hate your damning corruption if you're not yet a believer. That's the effect of this text. So here's the question, or a summary statement so far in chapter 7. What's the point, Paul? What's the point? You're going on and on about this. You said die to sin so you might, or die to the law so you might be joined to another. What, what are you trying to say? I think this is the one thing Paul's trying to say. I taught you to die to the law, not because the law is sin, but because we're so sinful that if you just get near the law, your sinful nature will use it to kill you. And so you've got to die to it if you're going to be saved. It's your only hope. We are so sinful that we just get near the law. Just get near the law. And our sin takes it and kills us with it. Now the question is, how does it do that? We need to understand this. If it's that dangerous, if it's that deadly, how does it do that to us? How does sin kill? And the key word is in verse 11. Sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Deceived is the key word. If you're here this morning and you are perishing under the weight, guilt, power of sin, it's for one reason. You're believing a lie. Sin's a liar. Sin is a liar. It only kills people by lying to us, making promises it cannot keep. That's what sin does. I picture it like this in my head. It it is so subtle. It is so half-truth oriented. It says to you, this is an analogy, just take it for what it is. Piper, you're tired. Okay, I'm tired. You need a good night's rest. Okay, I need a nice. Thank you, sin, for telling me that. You're, you're tense though and you're vibrating and so you're not going to be able to go to sleep. I know. Well, here's some sleeping pills. Take a pill. 
Let me read the bottle. One pill, give you a good night's sleep, it says. But, but Piper, you need more than a good night's sleep. You need a really good night's sleep. You need a good night's sleep that's a hundred times better than an ordinary night's sleep. Yeah, I do. So take a hundred pills. Take a hundred. I hate sin. It's so deceptive. Uses logic, fallacious logic, but plausible logic. Uses half-truths. You won't die, Eve. You won't die. That's half-truth. Hate sin with me. Hate your sin with me. Develop a wholesome hatred for the lie that sin uses in your life. You know, the word Satan occurs one time in the book of Romans. Chapter 16, verse 20, and it's almost over. You know why? That's not our problem. I shouted that over and over again in Cameroon to those young pastors who live in the midst of an animistic worldview where Satan is a very big deal. And I said, it is a big deal. He's a big deal, but he's not a big deal ultimately. Sin is our problem. Satan doesn't damn anybody. God damns people because their sin is not forgiven. There's only one reason people go to hell, and it isn't Satan. It's sin. Unforgiven sin. And the gospel solves the problem. And it solves the little ones as well, like Satan. He's just little. Sin is big. Sin is really big. Sin damns people. My sin damns me. Your sin damns you. Unless we're justified. One last question. How does this liar lie about the law? Because that's what verse 11 says. Let's get specific as we close here. Verse 11 says, sin Taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me. So what did he say? What did he say? Here comes the commandment. Don't covet. Or here comes the commandment. Whatever. You pick your commandment. And sin sees it coming. Takes it. And he lies about it. What does he say? Here's what I think he says. I think everything he says about the law can be boiled down to two lies. They sound almost like opposites, and in fact, at root, they're the same. Lie number one. Here comes the law. Sin rises up, snatches the commandment, looks at it and says to you, you can't do that. No way. You wouldn't want to if you could. I don't think there's a God in heaven, but if there is, and there may be, there's no way you could live up to his expectations. So you're hopeless. So now medicate with as much self-indulgence as you can in this life and put all that spiritual stuff out of your head. Hopeless self-indulgence is a lie. That's the first lie. Here's the other one. 
The commandment comes. Sin sees it coming, reaches out, snatches it, looks at it and says to you, you can do this. You can do this. Just muster your willpower and prove that you're as good as the next guy and get yourself ready for judgment. You can do this. Become a hopeful person. Be hopeful. And sustain your hopefulness with self-righteousness. Or we won't call it that. Sometimes sin slips. So, lie number one, hopeless self-indulgence is the proper and only response to this impossible law. Lie number two, hopefulness sustained by self-righteousness is the way to respond to the law. And sin knows which one you will fall for best. Whether you will be a hopeless person, relieved with self-indulgence, or whether you will be a hopeful person, sustained by self-righteousness. They're both lies. They'll both kill you. Satan, sin, will kill you. With one lie or the other. So what's the remedy? And now we're back where we started. It is good news. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Whether you started off as a self-indulgent, hopeless person this morning in this room. Or whether you started off as a hopeful person sustained by self-righteousness. In both cases, the the gospel comes to you and says, I've got good news for you, self-indulgent, hopeless person. There's hope for you because though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow for Jesus' sake alone, not your own. And to the hope-filled, self-righteous person, The gospel comes and says there's real hope for you because though your righteousness be as filthy rags, there is a perfect obedience ready to clothe you, wrought out by Jesus Christ. And the key to salvation from the damnation of self-indulgence and the damnation of self-righteousness is faith alone in an alien righteousness And the blood of a Savior whose meal we just ate. And so I end. Come to Him. Believe in Him. Receive Him as the treasure of your life. That is the way to be saved. The way to be forgiven for all that crap. Self-indulgence or self-righteousness. It can be forgiven. In its place comes an imputed gift of righteousness that Jesus performed for us and we receive by faith alone. You cannot improve upon it and you treasure it as the most wonderful thing in your life. This is goodness. So let's give expression to it. Open your folder, worship folder. You see the last verse of Jesus, what a friend for sinners or our great Savior. 
The last verse, Jesus, I do now receive him. Only let's change it to you. Jesus, I do now receive you more than all in you. I find you have granted me forgiveness. I am yours and you are mine. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. You are with me to the end. And he will be that for you. That's, that's the meaning of grace. He'll be that for you. And so you may have walked in here an an alien and foreigner to Jesus Christ and walk out of here a friend to God, forgiven and justified. And now risen Christ, confirmed to every person their own faith in you and transform every life and bring us into a treasuring of yourself that will set us free from self-indulgence and self-righteousness to the glory of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.